You're listening to The Product Edge, and I'm Jade Bennett, Australia's leading product management recruitment expert, founder of Middleton Executive, and a professional development and mindset coach. In this podcast, I take you on a journey into the minds of exceptional product leaders, entrepreneurs, creators, and hustlers. In each episode, I introduce you to experts in their field, and my mission is to help every product professional level up and reach their full potential by providing you with the skills, insights, and tools that you need to excel in your career and gain your product edge. I'm Georgia Hart, Principal Consultant at Middleton Executive and your guest host. I'm passionate about all things product and tech and can't wait to explore some amazing topics with Australia's top product leaders. Joining me today is Ali Akpazadeh. Ali is General Manager of International Products at PEXA, but has previous experience helping companies such as NAB, Medibank, and Blix break new ground with digital products and experiences. He has developed and owned industry-leading B2C digital channels and B2B SaaS products from business case to launch and beyond. He's really been able to see it all. Having managed multinational teams to deliver AI, machine learning, and IoT experiences on a global scale, and with 20 years of experience of online branding, strategy, and thought leadership, I'm really excited to talk to him today about go-to-market strategies. But before we dive in, Ali, do you mind just taking a moment to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me here today. Um, yeah, so I, I came to uh, product management um, through, I guess, a process of accidental osmosis, like uh, most people I know in product management, uh, and at a time when product management didn't really exist as we know it today as a sort of profession, or at least digital product um, management. I uh, actually trained as a, a marketer and a lawyer many, many, many years ago, but sort of fell into web development as a beer money job at uni, and then had the good fortune of um, doing that with a sort of tiny two-person startup called Hitwise that uh, ended up becoming one of those great successes of that first Australian dot-com wave. So I had this kind of roller coaster ride with them, and so sort of grew from two people in uh, South Melbourne to you know three hundred and fifty people in in five markets. And you know soon I wasn't just sort of writing code; I was you know dreaming up of new products and shaping roadmaps and you know pitching to Fortune five hundreds and agonising over UX and designing marketing and all the fun things you get to do in in small companies that are um, seeing that huge growth. And it was sort of that intense boot camp on all the things that we now call product management um, that I got in, in some of those early roles. And once you develop a taste for it, I guess, um, you know, when, when you can dream up and ship new products every day and see them grow and succeed, then I guess, you, you know, you just want to do that forever. And so since then, I've sort of run the gamut of digital channel management and strategy and uh, product roles. But I think where I've landed now and where I'm happiest is helping companies do new things. So it's bring new products to market, you know, explore new technologies. Maybe it's, um, you know, chasing new business models. You get a really unique uh, set of existential challenges each day that can, uh, you know, that kill the idea or kill the business. And working out how to navigate those is uh, where I think, yeah, I've I've found my niche. Um, So, yeah, that's me. Can't wait to hear more about it. Um, we all know that building and launching brilliant products requires a good understanding and harmonizing of the internal focus, which we'd say is the build, with the external focus, the launch. So the go-to-market strategy captures how you will bring a specific new experience or series of new experiences to market. But could you clarify, Ali, what the scope of a go-to-market strategy is? 
Sure. It, it seems to mean different things to different people, a bit like almost every term we uh, try to align around uh, in product land. Um, but it, at its heart, it's really about what, once you've built a product or as you get to the latter stages of building a product, how are you going to get that value you've created into people's hands? And so to answer that question, you've got to answer a lot of sort of sub-questions. You know, the first is you've got to figure out, you know, who's your customer? Uh, and it's not necessarily the entire universe of users you're, you, you've built your product for, but who's your customer on day one? You know, who are you targeting and who are you marketing to on that first day that you launch your product? Um, and what makes them unique, you know, compared to the other users you might uh, be considering? And how does your product solve your um, th that particular customer's problem? Being really clear and crisp on that messaging to that, that sort of initial target set of customers is really important. And doing that mindful of all the competitive products around you as well. Uh, and you're going to want to also, you know, figure out how to reach those customers and create awareness uh, in those customers' minds in a, in a cost-effective way. So how are you going to market and sell your product? What channels are you going to use? What's your sales strategy? And then also how are you going to price your product for that uh, particular customer segment and make money out of them? Uh, and then the final element that I think is often neglected is how are you going to keep those customers? And I think so many go-to-market strategies are, are focused just on, you know, that, that funnel to get customers in. But really for digital products, you know, especially, you need to be thinking about how you're going to retain those customers and create a sustainable base of, of loyal advocates for your product. So that's kind of quite a broad range. And how, you know, deep you go into each of those elements really depends on what your go-to-market product is for. So um, at the highest level, if you're building a new business, or maybe you're entering a new market, you need to, you know, you've got a greenfield approach to every one of those questions. You know, who am I targeting? What, what uh, value am I giving them? Um, how am I going to price it? How am I going to sell it? How am I going to distribute it? Um, but maybe if you're narrowing your focus to a go-to-market um, strategy for just one product, uh, then you might have a few of those elements fixed. So, you know, the, the market might be fixed. The customers may be your company's existing um customers. And then your question is, well, how are you going to just message that new product to them and price it, you know, compared to your other products? Or if you've got a market strategy is just focused on um, maybe just driving adoption of a single feature um, and your kind of product domain is, is a single feature, well, that still needs a go-to-market strategy. But, you know, maybe your users are set, it's the users of your um, core product. The channels are set, maybe it's the existing kind of marketing comms channels that your product has, your company has. And really, you're thinking about messaging and, and when and how you engage your customers to drive adoption. So you can go quite broad and quite deep, but it really depends on um, your, your remit as a product manager in your organisation and how much support you've got around you. So we know product managers are expected to know and do a lot already, and we are starting to see the product management role break down a little bit in some organisations. How much marketing knowledge, does, marketing knowledge does a product manager need to have in order to be able to put together a go-to-market strategy? Um, I sort of think of it, all the skills a product manager is expected to have. Uh, the answer is usually uh, you know enough and potentially a lot. Uh, it really depends on... Uh, again, the, the role of a product manager in your particular company and, and how much other support you've got around you to think through each of those elements of how you market and sell and distribute your product. You know, in, in some companies, each element of, of um, the strategy, whether it's pricing or marketing or sales or distribution and retention, you know, these are deep disciplines in themselves. You've got, you know, teams of people in big companies who are focused on each of those elements. But in smaller companies, if you're, you know, um, the only PM or you don't have a dedicated sales and marketing function. Well, it's kind of up to you as a, as a product um, manager to step in and fill that gap of internal thinking. 
Um, and the reason why it's important for the product team to feel ownership and accountability of making sure that thinking gets done if it's you know not being done around them uh, is because what gets most product people out of bed in the morning isn't sort of building the thing, it's building the thing and, and seeing it used. Um, you know, there's no point building a, a great product if you don't have confidence that it's not actually going to get into customers' hands. And also product teams are uniquely placed because, you know, to develop a great product, you need to have a pretty good understanding of the you know, universe of users you're building it for, what their pain points are and how you're going to help solve them. So you're also uniquely placed to um, help, you know, refine the messaging for that, um, that group of customers or figure out how you're going to reach those customers because it'll draw on a lot of the insights you've probably already developed through the UX um, and product development process. Something that um, I often use this example when I'm trying to explain the importance of, of go-to-market strategies and, and why product teams should care about them. Um, and for those of you who um, you know are aware of Starbucks, I'm sure everyone listening to this probably um, is. But you know, when Starbucks came to Australia in the early noughties, they brought the same product that had been hugely successful around the world. Um, but they also made the mistake in Australia of bringing the same go-to-market strategy that they'd adopted around the world, which was you know, kind of shock and awe. You, know, you saturate um, city centres and, and retail centres with a lot of stores and you, you know, target your product at people who can afford to pay um, a little bit, you know, a little bit extra for a cup of coffee that's got a nice brand around it. Um, and that that's worked for them uh, globally and, and they assumed um, that that would work for them locally, but it didn't. So, you know, most Australians already have pretty decent coffee on their doorstep. And from a product perspective, we're not really after, you know, six pumps of pumpkin spice latte syrup, you know, in, in their coffees each morning. So the product market fit that they enjoyed in other markets just didn't really apply here. And so, you know, it didn't take long. I think, you know, a few years after they launched, Starbucks had to close down 70% of their outlets and they beat a bit of a retreat and, and reset. And now they've got a much more focused go-to-market strategy, which is recognising that, you know, Australians may not regularly drink Starbucks, but there are millions of overseas students and tourists who come here each year, or at least in sort of pre-pandemic times, uh, who kind of hang out in major metro centres and tourist centres, and they're looking for that sort of familiar taste of coffee that they get at home. And so Starbucks now has a, a, an approach that's designed to fill that need, and they've built a, look, admittedly smaller, but a much more sustainable business um, because of a, a much clearer view on how they wanted to bring their product to market. And so across that sort of time period, the product was the same. The product didn't change that much. Um, but the difference between failure and a sustainable business for them was being much clearer on their go-to-market approach. So that's why I think product managers need to really care about the go-to-market strategy, the products they build. And, you know, the, the first step is just to be mindful of all those different elements, whether it's pricing and channels and distribution that you need to think about, and to design and build your, your product um, with an eye on how it's going to be taken to market. Something that I really encourage um, product people to do is when you think about a product roadmap, especially for the early stages of your business, don't just think about a roadmap of features, think about a roadmap of both product and go-to-market objectives and strategies. Because at each phase of your business, it might be that the, you know, the first phase is designed to just prove the product works. The second phase is designed to prove that um, the product's desirable and you've got enough customers who want to buy it. And maybe the third is more focused on um, growing market share or transaction share or reaching profitability. At each of those phases, your, the features that you ship will you know, help advance um, that goal, but also your you know, pricing and um, marketing and sales strategies might also change. And making sure that you've got that tight alignment between your product roadmap and your go-to-market strategy roadmap is, is really important. So I often encourage people just to have it all on one page. You have a, a 
sort of a framework I call a, a product alignment um, and go-to-market alignment roadmap. Uh, and then when it comes to actually executing these things and how much experience you need actually running sales and marketing, look, the more you can get, the better. And I think it's it's great experience. If you've ever got an opportunity to be part of a marketing campaign or, or help um, run a sales campaign or go out to sales um, conversations and help drive people through a sales funnel, take it. It's an invaluable experience, not just because it helps deepen your own understanding of the user base and the, and the customer base you're targeting, but it also breeds, I think, a really healthy humility that everyone who's ever sort of built a product, um, you know, stood there on launch day and pressed the go live button and, and had their you know chest filled with pride and hope. And then all you see is tumbleweeds for the next few days and, and adoption, you know, has tanked and you don't have people beating down your door. That is, you know, being mindful of just how hard it can be to market and acquire customers um, I think makes you a more disciplined and more focused product manager because you know that you can't just build it and hope they'll come. You need to build something amazing and spend as, just as much time and effort thinking about how you're going to sell it and communicate it. Um, yeah, so a little, um, but potentially a lot is uh, <laughs> back, back to the answer. <laughs> it's the short answer. <laughs> and um, how does the go-to-market strategy tie in with the sales and finance strategy? Is that something that is thought of right at the start or halfway through at the end? I'm sure not at the end. That might be a bit of a mistake. <laughs> really all, all together, I think, uh, you know, you need to, especially in, in new businesses or early stage businesses, um, each part of your product strategy and your go-to-market strategy is so dependent on each other that you need to have a pretty clear view on all of them uh, and how they're going to work together. I mean, the sales strategy is an essential part of the, the go-to-market strategy. You need to be, be really clear on how you're going to you know, sell and convert prospects um, into customers because that's really the final step of getting your, your product into um, people's hands. And, and for an early stage product, you know that sales approach can make or break you, uh, especially if you're dealing with you know, large companies. So I've done a lot of work with startups who are, you know, focused their product on enterprise customers, but enterprise customers, you know, those sales cycles can be 12 to 18 months. And if you haven't thought through um, how long your sales cycle is going to take and your sales strategy doesn't reflect that, and that you don't have enough cash flow to cover that 18 months, it's going to take you to get those first big paychecks coming in. Well, then, you know, the success of your business won't be dependent on your product being any good. It'll be depending uh, dependent on your ability to manage cash flow when it's so lumpy. Um, and when it comes to finances, I think pricing is the, you know, the pricing and revenue strategy is, is the biggest overlap there with go-to-market. Um, you really need to know how you're going to make money and how you're going to use that money to sustain your product growth. Um, something that I often, when I think about sales and, and finance strategies, an experience that's always front of mind for me and shows just how interwoven the, the go-to-market and product roadmaps can be uh, is some work I did uh, a few years ago with a, a pretty audacious startup that was trying to build um, a, a whole new energy retailer for Australia. And their mission was to sort of enter the very crowded and really highly commoditized um, retail energy market with a product that was focused on homes with solar panels on their roof. So we have the highest penetration of rooftop solar in, in the world in Australia. It's about 20% uh, of roofs at the time. But the big three energy retailers aren't really doing much um, to help or, or much that's focused on, on that cohort of customers. And so this startup's idea was, well, let's make an energy retailer you know, for that group. 
Um, but building consumer brands is expensive. Getting those customers is, you know, it's trench warfare. Um, and so jumping through all the, the licensing hoops as well that you need to stand up an energy retailer takes money. And so as we sort of mulled, how do you solve all those problems at once? We sort of landed on this insight that we'd had from our early focus groups that one of the biggest reasons that people put solar on their roofs isn't to save the planet. It's actually to stick it to the man. Uh, and the man here is big, the, the big energy companies that they perceived as being um, sort of price gouges or, or not aligned to their interests. So we actually retooled the entire product and the go-to-market strategy around that insight. And, you know, that, that changed the way that the product was built. The, the pricing was designed so that the company would actually be more successful if it helped you be more self-reliant on your, on your rooftop solar. We actually didn't launch the product. First, we launched the business and as an investment opportunity. So we recruited, you know, uh, the same customers that we were hoping uh, to, to make customers one day, but we actually recruited them as investors. And it was quite a novel pitch. And they actually all dug into their own pockets. And, you know, we asked them to actually spend money to actually um, fund the business. And then once we'd done that, we ran a, seven, a six-week campaign and we actually set a new world record for the most popular uh, equity crowdfunding raise. Nearly 18,000 people um, dipped into their own pockets and actually bought a slice of the business because they believed in the idea of a company by solar, uh, you know, by solar owners for solar owners. And then guess what? When it come, came to actually launch the business and sell, well, guess who the first people in line were for us to market the product to? The investors that had actually funded the product. And so that's a really sort of, for me, a handy example of how the product that you build, the way that you fund that build, and then the way you sell that build can all be completely dependent on each other. Uh, and you need to think of them together through the um, launch of the business. On that then, apart from financials and, and financial success, are there other ways or some other ways in which product managers can measure success and what sort of commercials should be considered? Um, well, for a new product, you know, the most meaningful metrics are always going to be things like, you know, your sales volume and, and sales growth. Um, they're always great sort of indicators of uh, how desirable your product is to the market and whether the features that you dreamed of were, are actually landing and resonating with, uh, with your market. But it's also important to measure the, the cost effectiveness and the sort of the efficiency of your sales and marketing efforts. So, you know, how much is it costing you to reach the people that you want to tell about your product? Um, how many people see your ads and, and how much does that cost for each view? You know, what are your click-through rates from ads to a landing page? And what does that mean for you in terms of, you know, the cost per lead you're getting? How effective are you at turning those leads into, say, free trials and then those free trials and then converting them into actual customers? The, those funnel metrics aren't just really great ways to make sure you're not spending too much. But also, if, you're, if you've got a B2B or a, a B2E product where your sales cycles are much longer, over that 12 to 18 months, it might take you to actually net that first customer sale and get the revenue in the door. Those pipeline metrics are actually, you know, are often all the lead indicators you have of desirability because, it, you know, it's going to take you so long to get those first signals. If all you did was look at the actual sale and the actual revenue, you'd be sort of flying in the dark for, um, for, for a year. Uh, and once you've actually sort of, you know, got those customers, you're thinking through the total cost of acquisition for each customer um, and comparing that to the total amount of money you make from each customer. So often in um, you know, uh, sort of product land, you hear people talking about their uh, cost of acquisition to lifetime value ratio, uh, which is basically you know, for every dollar it uh, takes you to acquire someone, how much money are you making out of them? Um, people try to you know, aim for ratios of um, you know, one to three, um, but that will differ by product. And then lastly, it's good to keep an eye on metrics that help you measure 
um, the churn of your uh, customers? How well are you actually keeping customers? And that might be through metrics like dollar retention or, you know, churn rates uh, or even sort of uh, high-level metrics like uh, net promoter score and, and customer satisfaction. Some things I definitely need to go and Google there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's a bit of a topical debate revolving around product managers being called the mini CEO. And so something that I think ties into that is having access to the profit and loss statement. And so do you think that product managers should have one, maybe their own profit and loss statement if, you know, the actual CEO isn't prepared to give exposure to that or should they have exposure to the company's profit and loss statements? I am, uh, I'm so glad you asked this because I think it's an area that a lot of product managers, especially digital PMs, are often looking for the most growth in. You know, when I run uh, product management boot camps, I do a bit of an exercise at the start where I ask people to vote on the topics that, um, you know, the students want to focus on and hands down every time, um, you know, financial literacy, uh, reading and deciphering P&Ls, figuring out how to do, you know, high-level economic analysis of a new idea. These are all the areas that if you've come from a tech or design background, you often feel weakest in and maybe you don't feel comfortable um, trying to find uh, new development opportunities in. But it's it's so, so vital. Um, you know, do you need access to the uh, P&L statements? Absolutely. I mean, our primary mission as product managers isn't just to create value for customers, which is something that you often hear um, as a bit of a cliche. We only get paid because we create business value. We create value for businesses by creating that customer value. And so if you're not clear on how you're creating business value, then you probably won't uh, do a very good job of justifying your existence in the world or, or a business. You know, there's no point dreaming of an amazing product if you know you can't build it in a cost-effective way or if your support model is so expensive um, that you can't sort of economically scale it. You know, even if your products make a good first impression, but they deliver really terrible customer experience, your churn rates are going to be so high, you won't manage to have a, a sustainable, profitable business. So as a PM, you should really understand the economics um, of your product. And I think that's the first thing you really need to, to get deep on. You know, how much does it cost to build your product? How much do your squads cost? What's the run rate of your build team? Which of your you know, products and customers are driving the most revenue in? So not just where your costs are, but where's your revenue coming from? And is that a particular segment or cohort of your customers that's the biggest driver of uh, revenue or is it sort of spread across um, all of your customers? And how much is it, is it costing you to, to recruit each of those customers and then serve them? Uh, knowing those sort of high-level economics will really help you make better product decisions day to day. But also you need to know how your, you know, the, the product features that you ship or the products that you own impact the company's bottom line. And so, um, you know, being able to tie, for example, um, a new feature that you've, you've shipped to you know, a spike in new growth or new signups, that will help you be a much more effective advocate for the value you bring because you can show that the work that you do is directly tied to the financial performance of the business. And that's not always easy. Um, I've done a lot of work uh, with companies on their strategies in their service channels. And service channels often struggle because you're, you're trying, you know, you're not, you don't have uh, sales or revenue that you can point to that you've been able to um, push the needle on. But if you spend some time, often you can, you know, create some pretty compelling cases that show that, you know, every time we increase NPS by 3% on our service channels, it makes people X percent more likely to use them which is going to take, you know, Y percent of people away from our call centres. And when every call is costing you $30, you should be able to show how even the improvements you're making to a self-service channel 
um, for a SaaS product is actually driving real financial benefit for the business. But it's up to the product team to be able to articulate that because no one else is going to do it for you. And whether you should own a PL, I'm kind of more agnostic on. In, in more product-centered organizations, um, product teams tend to own the, the PL and also have accountability for things like sales marketing and support. But that's probably not the majority of companies that I've seen. I don't think you need to own the PL to feel a sense of ownership or accountability towards it. And I think as long as the product teams are incentivized um, with drivers of that PL, whether it's the cost to serve, the cost to acquire, whether it's um, customer satisfaction or, or product usage, uh, if you know if you're accountable for for those lead metrics of profitability and you're clear on how those metrics tie into profitability, I think you've got enough there to to give the product teams enough incentive to think about the financial benefits they bring. So if product managers aren't responsible for PL, who has the money to pay for that for those problems that come up or who yeah who should pay for that problem? It kind of really depends on, on the company and the organizational dynamics. I mean, in a big sort of large traditional corporates, you, you find that product teams often have sort of BAU funding that includes, you know, some bandwidth to maintain and maybe make some incremental improvements to a product. And then, you know, if you want to make a major change or launch a new product, you'll generally put together a business case that makes, you know, promises about what you're going to build, how much it's going to cost, and maybe, you know, five or 10-year revenue curve promises about how much money you'll, you'll bring for the company. Um, and then, you know, often that business case is stacked up against business cases from all over the organisation. And then you, it's something like an investment committee will meet and kind of you know, re- retreat to a room for a couple of days and emerge with the victorious 10 list of projects that get funded. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty traditional way of funding. And um, to, I, I'm not a big fan of it, especially for new products, because you're, you know, you're being asked to make cost and benefit promises based on um, really limited information, especially if you haven't done much discovery work uh, and, you, you know, all you've got is an idea and a belief in the value at the end of um, that roadmap. Uh, and so more mature and agile companies take a bit more of an incremental or a venture capital style funding approach where, you know, you might just get funding for a certain number of squads or a certain stream of value and you have to promise some high level uh, commercial goals like a rev target. But it's really up to the product teams to work with design and technology and, and sales on, you know, the best way to achieve, to achieve that commercial goals and, and what pro, you know, roadmap of features they'll um, put in to get there. And in, in smaller startups, who funds it? Really, it's, it's usually a collaborative process between, um, you know, sales and, and marketing and the founders often or your investors or your board uh, because you're so tightly dependent on each other that you need to sort of come together and make communal decisions on budget where you sit down as a leadership team and reflect on, you know, how much of our revenue are we going to spend on the growth and how much we're going to spend on um, all the other competing priorities that an early stage business faces. It's much more collaborative uh, and, you know, yeah, working together. And as someone who has worked in a lot of different markets, a lot of different industries, what advice do you have for product managers breaking into a new market? Because as a recruitment agency at Middleton Executive, we are generally asked to you know actually not generally but sometimes I to look for people with industry knowledge and people who have worked in b2b or b2c at least do you think that that's necessary as someone who has skipped around a lot of sectors and has gone from b2b to b2c to b2e to b2b to whatever the new acronym of the day is um i you know i think i'd be doing myself a disservice if i said it's important um i actually think that 
more important than the specifics. Look, there are some roles where deep technical knowledge uh, or, or expertise are, are needed, um, or at least some degree of knowledge is needed. But I have been constantly surprised by how relatively easy it can be to get to a pretty competent level of knowledge in a new industry fairly quickly by doing things like, you know, reading, um, you know, Googling around, reading trade blogs and magazines, talking to peers, and even reflecting on your own experience. Um, you know, I've often found that an outsider's experience is actually really useful because you're not bogged down by all the assumptions of how things can or should be done, what can't be done, what's easy or hard. If you just bring, I guess, your own life experience and some common sense, sometimes you have a really useful perspective on um, on things and can break some inertia that people who have been sort of in the trenches for a long time might have. Um, you know, it's it's interesting how common customer dynamics and uh, market dynamics can be across industries. Um, you know, whether, you, whether you're dealing with, uh, like I have, you know, health insurance or electricity or retail analytics or fraud or doctor's appointments or hotels and travel accommodation or superannuation, you know, at the end of the day, the challenge is the same. You want to, you know, figure out who the customer is, what, what their problems are and how you can make their world a, a better way and hopefully, you know, uh, click the ticket on the way through. And so to do that, I think all you really need is, is two traits. Um, you need curiosity and, and empathy. You need, you need the curiosity to always be learning and always be, um, you know, looking at a new business and thinking in the back of your head, I wonder how they're making money. I wonder what their model is. I wonder how they're overcoming their customer acquisition challenges or why, you know, this part of their business model isn't a huge um, cost drain on them. I love, I love just looking at a new startup and just thinking, you know, trying to reverse engineer in my mind uh, what sits behind them. And there's a real curiosity that if you have, then you can apply to anything, new, new customers or new industries. But then also an empathy to understand um, the, the needs and pains of new customer sets um, and the, the things that drive them and also new stakeholders that you might meet in every industry. So as long as you kind of don't doubt yourself and you've got curiosity and empathy, I think the rest just kind of falls into place. Yeah, that's really interesting that you say that because one of the, um, I can't remember where I found this document, but it talks about all the big fan companies and how they make their money. And it was, you know, talk about Amazon, Google, Facebook, and actually where they generated most of their revenue, it really shocked me. I have to go and look it up because I can't remember it all off the top of my head right now. But <laughs> um, I'd actually love to know a little bit more about you, Ali, and what has been one of your greatest achievements in your career? Um, for me, the things I've, I've taken the greatest pride in is all the kind of the firsts that I've had the uh, the, the great pleasure of and, and luck to have worked on, you know, whether it was, you know, the first online super fund in Australia, you know, the, the Victorian government's the first uh, travel site or the first travel e-commerce venture. Um, like I said, the world's most popular equity, equity crowdfunding raise, world's first AI tool, you know, built on privileged data, um, Australia's first digital monitoring, media monitoring tool, um, you know, all this kind of breaking new ground in tech, um, it, it's so much fun, uh, but it's so full of daily uh, existential threats and risk. But I just, I've, I've loved doing it and uh, wouldn't be doing anything else. I love that. And I probably covers the same question. What's been the biggest obstacle that you've had to overcome? <laughs> Not all those existential threats, because I think what you realise <laughs> over time is that, you know, the, the threats come thick and fast uh, and they're inevitable, but they're just work to be done. And over time, if you've got the right team, you actually, you know, you just build confidence that, you know, no matter what what the crisis of the week is, that you'll just, um, you'll knock it down and solve for it and then move on to the next challenge. 
Uh, probably the biggest obstacle to overcome is, is that sort of constant gnawing feeling if you're in the product space, especially if you've had a meandering slash you know, checkered uh, career like I have, that I think I've always questioned whether these you know, this random collection of skills or experiences that you acquire across you know, tech and marketing and business and design, you know, how is that ever going to result in a, in a quote-unquote real job? You know? um, so for me, the, the rise of product management as a discipline has been a real joy because it finally makes it re- really easy to, to you know, give myself some satisfaction that there actually is um, you know, a discrete thing that sits in the middle of all these different parts of a business and all these disciplines that you need to create new products. Uh, and it certainly makes it easier to describe uh, what I do at, at barbecues. <laughs> I love that the barbecue pitch <laughs> um look I could sit and talk to you all day Ali um but I think that calls it for now what um an amazing you know sharing of your insights and experiences today can how can people stay connected with you uh probably the easiest way is LinkedIn my my Twitter feed has atrophied over the years I'm kind of slowly just moving away from most of the socials but I will occasionally um uh, yeah, post something or pop up on LinkedIn and really encourage anyone. Um, I love I love hearing from PMs and I want a mission to convert uh, all the interesting people in the world to product managers. So um, if, you, yeah, if you're curious, you want to say hi, you want to grab a coffee, um, we'd, we'd love to connect. And lastly, what would be one of your, uh, sorry, what would be your one piece of advice for product managers? Um, I might sort of circle back to what I mentioned before, which is always stay curious and, and keep your empathy tank full. I mean, for customers and your stakeholders and, and your bosses and just have fun with it. And I think we have the, the best jobs in the world um, in the product space. And we, we sort of get to bring together you know, deep experts in, in tech and design and business and think creatively about how to make people's lives better. Um, so just enjoy the ride and yeah, have fun. <laughs> I love that. Ali, thank you so much again. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Cheers. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Product Edge, brought to you by Middleton Executive. You can head to theproductedge.com.au to subscribe to Australia's number one podcast for all things product management. I would love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. Until next time, I look forward to introducing you to more product leaders, entrepreneurs, creators, and hustlers who will share their insights and experiences to help you level up and reach your full potential.